All right. This morning is December 14th, 2003. Our message this morning is called A Nation of Imitators. Usually, when you're talking about somebody being an imitator, you use that in a derogatory sense. You know, they're not the real thing. They're the imitator. But in Christianity, it takes on a whole new meaning. Because all of us understand we're not the real thing. We're just imitating the one who is. And uh, I found out some neat things in study about that. The reason it's a nation of imitators, we have a national vision. I mean, as, as a church here, we understand Israel's place among the nations. We understand our role in that. So as we talk about this this morning, I'm going to mention the national destinies of nations and what God's trying to do. But more than that, so that you can apply it to your life. Nations are made up of individuals. So we're going to talk about how as an individual we can take part in God's national destiny. Uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. That's, that's going to be where we start. Uh, this morning it's worth mentioning that I think all of you know Saddam Hussein was captured. That is a very good example of God being able to raise up one nation for the purpose of chastising another nation. These events don't happen. God didn't, or George Bush did not just decide to go do what he did. The destiny of nations is determined, and God raises up people who will fulfill his will regarding those. For instance, when God prophesied or spoke through, spoke to Abraham. He told him certain things would happen in, in a certain number of generations uh, to his descendants in Egypt. Then God had to raise up a Pharaoh who would fulfill those, that destiny. Well, God has an end purpose, an end game, if you will, for the nation of Israel. As the nation was obedient or disobedient to that, God has Raised up nations that chastised them to keep them on course. Other nations to encourage them. In fact, it even gets to the place where he's cutting members out of that nation and grafting other members into it so that ultimately it will reach its goal, which is to be the chief among nations. Uh, one nation of priest, royal priesthood, that is an example to all other nations. And that much of this is fulfilled in the millennial reign, but right now we're in the process of building that nation. The title's A Nation of Imitators, and we're starting in Psalms 2. Y'all there? Okay. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. That word anointed one there is Christ. Speaking of the kings of the earth and the rulers taking their stand against Christ. Now, Jesus is the personification of the Christ. He's the head of the anointed one. But the church is called his body. So we are all, therefore, Christ. So it's not just taking a stand against Jesus. He's the head. It's taking his stand against the anointed one. We're in the process of drafting the anointed one. The head, the firstborn among many brothers, is in his position. There's a man in the Godhead now, and his name is Jesus. The members of his body are being fulfilled. As we have godly children, as we carry out our roles, the body of Christ is being built. The anointed one is being completed. But the peoples of the earth say, Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The principle that we're going to start with this morning is that there is one king who's been anointed over all the nations. That's King Jesus. We know that. He's Lord of all. When he was raised from the dead, he proclaimed all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's what he told us. We know he's the king of the Jewish nation, but he is declared to be king over everything to the point where he's declared to be in the Godhead. Romans comes right out and calls Jesus God. Well, the father speaking with the son says, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And then the psalm ends with, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The way that Jesus is inheriting the nations is as individual members of nations depart from their national destiny, they depart from what their nation was called to do, they give up, in a manner of speaking, their national destiny and go join with the king of Israel in that destiny. See, we are running from, for instance, you could have been a German in World War II and your nation be destined to raise up a figure that would mirror the Antichrist. But as an individual German, you could depart from that national destiny and you could go and say, no, 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 no. I want to take part. I want to have my refuge in the king of Israel. I I want to go be a part of that nation in a spiritual sense. This is where Paul begins to get his language where he says things like, uh, even... uh, Spiritual Israel, or even the Israel of God. Speaking of not just the natural entity, but this entity that is made up of many nations. In fact, if you turn to Psalm 18, and I had not really planned to do this, but uh, Psalm 18, uh, starting in 43. This is David uh, prophesying. In the spirit of Christ, if you're taking notes, this is Psalm 18:43, and I'm not sure where we'll stop. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me. As soon as they hear me, they o- obey me. Foreigners cringe before me. See, we were foreigners to the nation of God. We were Gentiles outside of God's holy nation. But when we're hearing the voice of Jesus, when we come before Him, we are obeying Him. So we are being considered His subjects. See, He's your King if you obey His commands, which is really where we're going with this message today. The purpose of God is to have one nation made up of all the nations of men. All the ethnic groups, the way the book of Revelation says it is every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. This is not just political boundaries. This is not just uh, ethnic backgrounds. It's all of those things from every representative group on the planet. 
whether we're talking about an African-American or we're talking about an African in Africa or we're talking about a Dutch American or whatever it is, God will have his remnant from the entire earth represented in his holy nation. We're not going to get into the entire purpose of that holy nation this morning. Eventually we will. But what it has to do with is one group of people that rule and reign the entire earth in a millennial reign for the purpose of being an example to the other nations. Are you all with me so far? Okay. Well, that is kind of the big picture. And you could rejoice in that. You could be excited about the big picture. But it means absolutely nothing if you don't carry out your part as an individual within the holy nation. See, America can be destined to bring the gospel to the world. And you be an American, but not do what America was called to do. You can even work against your national destiny within the nation. Our nation might be destined to war against Israel. I don't believe that's the case, but it might be. I could work against that national destiny within this nation. Well, the same is true of the spiritual nation of Israel, the, the Israel of God. You can be considered a Christian, but be working against the destiny of your spiritual nation, this holy priesthood. We don't want to be. That's what we're going to cover today. The word disciple, we've heard a lot of. The simple way to do this in English is to say disciple comes from discipline. It means one who's disciplined. But that's from English. And when you're looking at the etymology of words, you can't always just take your language and see how it was defined. That's not fair. You can't only run it through the languages that you're familiar with. If you're familiar with German, you just give the German etymology. If you're familiar with Spanish, it's best to have a look at the original language if you're capable of it. And we, we have the ability on our computers to study almost any language in the world, which Man, what an awesome... We're living in the age Daniel said knowledge would increase and so would wickedness, and it has. There's a computer in this other room in here that I can study the very words of God or I could study the most depraved things on the planet right all through the same source. We choose to do what's holy. But the word disciple, I want, I'm going to string together definitions from several lexicons that I looked at, okay? So... If you look, look up the word disciple, you'll find these definitions in different places. I've not added to any of them. I've not taken away from any of them, except for the sense that I took a phrase from each one and I strung them together to get a description. Does that make sense? Y'all trust me enough to, to hear that? Disciple. An adherent. You got me? An adherent. Disciple. An adherent. One who follows Another's teaching. One who is being instructed for the purpose of being like the teacher. I loved what this one said. A pupil, but not just a pupil. An imitator. See, a pupil is one who learns. But an imitator is one who puts into practice what he's learned. You're learning to imitate something. Get that again. An adherent. One who follows Another's teaching. One who is being instructed for the purpose of being like the teacher. Not just a pupil, but an imitator. See, when we were called to be disciples, in English we said we're called to be those who are under discipline or training. That's all very good. But that's not all there is to it. And I'm not disparaging that. I've been preaching that message to you all for weeks. There's more to it. You're called to learn for the purpose of being like the teacher. In fact, in the simplest 
form. You are supposed to be an imitator of God. Now, the Scripture doesn't just tell you to imitate God. That's what's interesting. As I looked into imitate, turn to Ephesians 5.1. As a nation of imitators, you could say a nation of disciples, because those two words are synonymous. Y'all awake this morning? This is not one you want to sleep through. This is a message that, if you apply, will mean a long, fruitful ministry. Y'all in Ephesians 5? Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You're supposed to imitate God first and foremost. I'm going to give you three scriptures that teach you of what you're supposed to imitate. But I want you to hear a common thread in each one of these. The common thread is suffering and sacrifice. See, we weren't just called to imitate somebody who was blessed in every realm. Jesus was. He was blessed in every realm. And we imitate him. But what was he also? Heavily persecuted and opposed. My wife was emailing somebody this morning who was being opposed in their, their desire to do God's will. That's not a surprise. We're imitating somebody who was opposed at every turn. But we're not just imitating him. We're also imitating his apostles. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. All the T's are together in your Bible, so hang a right, get to the T's. 1 Thessalonians 1. Starting with uh, verse 4. For we know, brothers... Loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Now, when you hear that the Holy, that the gospel came to them with power, what do you think of? Immediately with Paul, I tend to think of miracles. As I've read deeper into Paul's writings, that's not what he's talking about. There may well have been miracles. Even when he speaks in Corinthians of a demonstration, Of the Spirit's power. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the very heart of this ministry. The gospel didn't come to you in word only. It didn't come to you without power. It came with the life transforming power. See, the proof that the gospel is real. The proof that the message is from the king. Is not that a miracle was done. I mean, that that's fantastic. But people receive miracles and never become Christians. Many who receive miracles even fall away. The proof that the Gospels come to you in power is that your life is not momentarily changed, not for a few months, but forever changed. The Gospel came to me in power. It came to me in power and I know that because the fruit of it in my life has been the total renovation of a human being. I've become an imitator of God. But not of God only. Watch this. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. First, you imitate God. Secondly, you imitate the apostles that God has called. The men of God in your life that He's called to be an example to you. In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers. See, 
Jesus is somebody that we imitate. He suffered and he was blessed. And we're supposed to imitate him in that. But not only Jesus, everybody Jesus called to be our leaders, to be the example. Read the book of Acts. All of them suffered tremendously. We're to imitate them in that. Not that we go look for suffering, but that we handle it the same way that they did. Does that make sense? There's a third thing that you're supposed to imitate. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.14. This is just on the next page. We're going to start in verse 13. Jesus was a model to us. The apostles who followed Jesus were a model to us. And not only that, but now we see in verse 13 and 14 of the second chapter. And we also thank God continually because you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which you which are in Christ. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. You imitate God first. You imitate the apostles second. You imitate the churches of God thirdly. No such word as thirdly, but y'all will forgive me for that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that the Bible that contains these words of God, we're to imitate their very lives. What does it mean to imitate? It means that your life follows a similar pattern. I once heard that imitation is the highest form of flattery. You know, if your competitor is trying to model their business after you, if you've got the yellow pages, the real yellow pages, and somebody else comes out with the yellow book, you could be insulted by that, or you could take that as a form of flattery. They think enough of what we're doing to want to model their business after ours. Well, we are supposed to be modeling our lives First, after Jesus. Secondly, after the apostles. And third, after the churches that the apostles established. That's why I want to follow Jesus. I want to be like the apostles. And I want our church to resemble the churches of the apostles. See, this is where the foundation is laid. It's difficult. Indeed, Paul said he wanted to go to regions where the gospel had not been preached so that he didn't have to deal with another man's foundation. The foundation is supposed to be that you imitate God at all costs. Every decision in your life should boil down to, is this God's will? Is this what Jesus would do? Is this what the apostles would do? Is this the example that we see set forth in the churches of God? Because you are first and foremost to be called a nation of imitators or disciples. In Matthew 28... You see the Great Commission. I've taught on this a, a few times, mostly at a church in Louisiana. But I will never forget when this scripture opened up to me. I had always heard the Great Commission as, you know, you go ye therefore into all the world. And I had talked about the baptisms and people believing. And I had skipped over the most important parts of Matthew. And it's because at the time I really did not have 
I understood the plan of God in its total end game. That, that Corinthians 15 would teach you God's desire is to have His rule obeyed all in all. To be totally one with His creation. I knew that. But I didn't necessarily understand the role of the nations in it. And how the Israel of God would work. Well, listen to this. Listen to how Jesus commands His apostles after being discipled. And by the way, apostle means one sent. It's the word that the Romans used for their ships. Okay? It's one sent. You cannot be one who is sent until you have been one who's been taught to imitate God. Because first and foremost, you imitate God. Then secondly, godly leaders. Then thirdly, the godly churches. If you've never been taught to do that, how can you be sent to teach others to do it? You must be discipled before you teach. The old joke about the baptism in the Holy Ghost is, you know, if these guys had not waited the 40 days until Pentecost... What would they be? Well, they'd be our denominational pastors today. Men who were not discipled, but are trying to teach. You have to be discipled by the Master before you can teach. You have to follow in the doctrine of the apostles. You have to know the format for the godly church so that you can imitate that. Listen to what the Great Commission actually says. Hear every word of this, because it's so easy to read over the most important parts. Then Jesus came to them and said, this is 28:18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Psalm 2. This is Psalm 18. This is a myriad of scriptures. He's the head among all things. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What he's telling them in the most rudimentary sense is, I want you... To go as a part of my nation, because I'm the head of all things. I want you to go find people in other nations and teach them to imitate what you've learned to imitate. I want you to go make disciples, people who are willing to be disciplined, people who are willing to be trained to be like him. And not only him, but also the apostles and also the churches they would establish. Well, what do you do? You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything. You cannot be a disciple without being one who is obedient. All you are, if you're not obedient, is a listener. Now, I'll give you a a great... No, probably nothing I say is great. But an example that means a lot to me. I listen to AM radio sometimes. hope that doesn't shock you. My entire life is not filled with praise and worship music. There are times that I'm listening to the AM radio. I'm not a sports buff, so on the AM radio, I'm not listening to sports shows. I'm listening to political commentary. Because the longer I've been in the kingdom, the more I'm becoming interested in politics. I went through the whole stage where I almost was unpatriotic because I knew I was grafted into a new nation and had forsaken my political roots, if you will, well, now it's beginning to be something that interests me, how God works in the affairs of the nations. Well, probably no secret that the most well-known commentator in the United States on United States politics on the AM radio is Rush Limbaugh. I am a listener for Rush Limbaugh. I hear what he says. I am not a disciple of Rush Limbaugh. I do not apply the things that he says to apply. I do not pattern my life after his life. I simply hear its entertainment value. But let me bring that right down to the level that we're talking about. If you sit in a church 
and you do not apply the message, if you do not become an imitator of the lives of the people who are teaching you, and of Jesus, and of the church, then you're a, a mere listener. You're an audience member. We want to move beyond listener and into the imitator realm. If you've ever wondered why God says, why His Word teaches, that sheep know their shepherd's voice, it's because as a sheep, you have a unique shepherd that you are supposed to imitate as he imitates the Father. Some were churches planting, planted by Paul, some by Peter, some by... There was a specific reason for that. If you're in a given church, your life should, in many respects, mirror the leadership of the church as, as and only in the context that that church is mirroring Jesus. I wondered why God had me discipled where He did. It was not long, and people would say, you know, you remind me of somebody. You know, and as, as people that knew Buzz Treme and also knew me, they were at times amazed that people with such different backgrounds, different in the natural in every way, could resemble each other so much. God called me to a specific shepherd so that my life would mirror His as His mirrored Jesus. Now, there are things in His life I don't want to mirror. There are things in my life you shouldn't want to mirror. But to the extent that His life mirrors Jesus, I do want to. And to the extent that my life imitates Jesus, you should want to. It's not a mistake that you're where you are. Y'all following me? Does that make sense? In this great commission, He says, Go forth and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And then He says, I'm with you even to the very end of the age. You know why? Because the task He gave them was hard. It's easy to get listeners. I could build a gymnasium out here in this field, and I could get a church full of listeners. As one of my relatives recently said, they went to a church and they loved it because they gave them things. Now, is that a church full of listeners or a church full of imitators? See, the, it is easy to get a crowd. What is hard to do is get a group of disciples because that's called by the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you, I do not want a crowd. I want a group of disciples. Jesus had crowds following Him at times. And He rebuked Him. He said, you're following Me because of the miracles, because of the loaves that I'm giving you. When it was all said and done, He only had a handful of disciples. The same is true. It's a remnant within the remnant. Out of all mankind, there's only a remnant that is interested in hearing God's Word then out of those that are hearing it, there is only a remnant that is interested in applying it. Well, the foundational Scripture, the thing that saved me, was not those that hear, not those that say, Lord, Lord, but Matthew 7.21, those who do the will of God. So when I'm preaching this, I'm preaching my very heart. This is what I'm about, is applying the Word of God. In the Great Commission, you're told to make disciples. We are forming a new nation of Jews and Gentiles who are an obedient example to the rest of the nations. There's a day when the world's political structure will be totally renovated and the chief among nations will be us, the Israel of God. Jews, Gentiles forming one nation. You cannot be a member of that nation if you are not obedient now in its infant stages. You can't be an example of obedience if you've never been obedient. We need to learn now, in this life, at this time, how to obey God so that we qualify 
to be a member of the obedient nation, the example to all of the other nations. In Romans 1, please turn there. Those of you that are taking notes, it's going to be Romans 1, 1 through 6. Paul said this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through the Holy Spirit, or through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through him... And for His name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, all the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith. Did you get that? The obedience that results or comes from faith. You say that you have faith in God? James says, prove it by what you do. This scripture teaches that there's a relationship between faith and obedience. Your faith in you, the fact that you believe Jesus is who He said He is, you believe He's the Lord, will mean that your life produces fruit that shows obedience. On that note, obedience is never really obedience if it's not hard. I mean, what kind of test is it to see if your six-year-old son... I want you to be obedient to me, Judah. Eat this chocolate sundae. You know, I mean, how is that obedience? It's obedience when his will differs with your will. Now, you may go, oh, that never happens. It happens every day. It happens when somebody pulls out in front of you in traffic. It happens when your boss is demeaning to you. It happens when your neighbor's dog keeps visiting your yard. It happens continually, all day, every day, not just in huge life decisions, where you live, where you work, all of those things, but in the smallest details. But your faith should produce obedience so that you choose His will over yours. Now, there are times it's hard to know which is which, but He's able to make it clear. Obedience that comes from faith. Before receiving the commission, we are told to count the cost. Since you know that if you have faith, it must produce obedience, you should count the cost before you follow Jesus. It's not enough to say, I believe. Your belief must produce action. Indeed, the way to define faith is a belief that is so strong, it produces action. Well, if you say you have faith before you make that proclamation, you should count the cost. Luke 14, 28 through 30, and you don't have to read that, but it says basically if a man's going to build a tower, will he not first see if he has enough to complete the tower? Won't he count the cost? Because if he begins to build and does not finish, won't everybody laugh at him and call him a fool? Well, the so-called body of Christ, the church that's out there, has said we have faith that they'll follow. But when it comes time to completing the tower... They're found to be lacking in obedience. And that causes the nations around to laugh. 
You know, God said one time to the Jews, My name is profaned because of you among the Gentiles. He could say the same thing to the church today. My name is profaned because you who say you've counted the cost, who have promised to be obedient, don't complete it. And so everybody looks and goes, what a bunch of flakes. Now, I'm generally pretty complimentary of the Spirit-filled church. The Spirit-filled church is worse in this regard than the non-Spirit-filled churches. You say, well, how could that be? Because the non-Spirit-filled churches make their decisions based on business. So when they commit to something, there's loans involved, there's approvals from boards. They don't back up on what they say they're going to build. Even if it's not God, they at least complete what they're going to do. The Spirit-filled church flutters around like a windshield wiper, bouncing from the left side of the car to the right side of the car. We change our minds with every blowing of the wind. This is God. No, that's God. No, this is God. When in reality, it never was God, or it's not God now. We seldom take responsibility for our actions and say, God called me to this and I don't have what it takes to complete it. We instead just say, God never called me to it. Or God changes His mind. And friends, those things do happen. It does. There are times where you'll be certain something's God's will, and in a matter of days, weeks, months, it does change. That happens. But it is not the norm. We need to quit laying at the feet of God excuses for our own inobedience. Inobedience is not a word either. Disobedience. One of the things I love about that movie, Joseph, is a line that's not in the Bible. Judah comes and, and he's explaining to, uh, to his father, Israel, you know, look, we'll go back and uh, if, if we don't bring Benjamin back with us, you can kill all of my firstborn sons. And he said, oh, great, you know, your, your wisdom's beautiful there, Judah. I'll just begin by exterminating my whole race. And Judah began to res- respond with something like, well, the Lord said, and he stopped him. He said, you be careful what you lay at the feet of the Lord. Now, that's not scriptural, but it touched my heart. Because we blame God for every bad decision we've ever made. We need to not do that. The nations around us, the people around us, see, that's not fitting for God's people. I'm not talking about struggling to find out what the will of God is. I'm talking about changing your mind every week about what the will of God is. You can't do it. Reinhard Bunker said something that has motivated my life. He said, you pray for the will of God and I'm going to run you over because I will do the will of God. In his mind, God has already shown him the basic premise for his life. So he doesn't have to stop and say, do I turn left or do I turn right? He does what God has shown him to do first. And when he comes to a cross in the road, then he prays. Does that make sense? Uh, Somebody asked me one time, pray about going to preach in this prison and let me know. I said, I don't need to pray about it. He goes, what do you mean you don't need to pray about it? I said, God has already shown me that I'm supposed to do this kind of thing. So I don't need to go pray and see if I'm supposed... He has already revealed that much to me. I will go. Give me the date and I'll be there. And I think that didn't set well with them. I can assure you, God... That was one of the most powerful messages I've ever preached in my life. I had more fun in that place than almost anywhere I've ever preached. There are some things you don't have to pray about. Whether or not to get baptized. If you're not baptized, you don't have to pray about that. Get baptized. Whether or not to pray in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray about that. Get baptized in the Holy Ghost. These are commands in the Word. You don't have to pray about whether or not you should stop committing adultery. The Word says don't commit adultery. We need to stop being so infantile in our faith. 
second-guessing God every moment. I wish we'd be as honest as Pharaoh was. Is that too high of a goal to shoot for? That we could be as honest as Pharaoh of Egypt was? I don't think that should be too high of a goal to shoot for. Turn to Exodus 5. Y'all try not to get distracted with those kids and stuff. Also pray that God show us how and when and provides the resources to remodel that garage to be a children's church. It's every bit as important that those kids are learned and discipled by us as that you guys are by me. Y'all in uh, Exodus 5? Watch what Pharaoh says. Moses comes and talks to him. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. You know, this reminds me of the two brothers that, that the parable where the, uh, Jesus asked the Pharisees, said, hey, one said, I'll obey, I'll go do it, and then he never went. Another said, I will not obey, I won't do it, and then later he repented and did do it. Which one did the will of God? Pharaoh, when confronted with the will of God for the Israelites, says, I don't know him, and I'm not going to do it. It's just fine with me if that's the decision that you make. If you're willing to stand up and say, hey, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I don't know this God, and I will not be obedient to Him, at least we know where we stand with you. I love Elijah. Elijah stands up in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, if you want to write it down, and he says, O Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve Him. But if the Lord is God, then serve Him and Him only. As a church, we need to make up our minds that we're going to be a nation of imitators and that every decision in your life will boil down to one thing. Is it God's will or not? And when you don't know, you make the best choice based on what you know about your church leadership, what you know about God, and what you know about the apostles. You make your best decision and do it in faith. It's not faith to, faith to second-guess yourself. It's not faith to be out of confidence. You know, somebody recently said, do I change this job and go to another one? Somebody that I work with. And I said, sweetheart, you pray. Set a time period. You pray, you hear from God about it. Once you believe you've heard from God, do not ever at any time go back and question whether that was God. You just go. You go forward in faith. Believing that God will work out things to benefit you. Because that's what Romans 8.28 says. When Buzz stood up here and said it, it, it's not easy to miss the will of God. That is contingent upon the fact that you're seeking it with your whole life. And that your actions are motivated by faith. See, if it's faith that compels you to do something. And it wasn't right in God's plan. He'll work it out to be in His plan. That's not a cop out. That's what the scripture does. He speaks of manipulating events. But if your actions are not motivated by faith, if they're motivated by disobedience, it's not hard to miss God. Look at all the people that start in this race and don't finish. You tell me that's hard? It's hard to miss God? Most fall away. It's not hard. It's the easiest. It comes natural to us because our hearts are not godly from birth. They have to be retrained. They lie to us. I want to stop wavering between two opinions. In Jeremiah 42... 
This is one you should turn to. Y'all awake? Y'all learning anything? We're going to Jeremiah 42. I'm not sure how much of this we'll read, but we're going to read at least the first six verses. This is a pretty complicated background to lay, so I'm not going to. You want to later, I'll tell you what, you want to be blessed? Later, read all of Jeremiah 42 and the preceding chapters and what's after it so that you'll get this context. I just like what the people said. I want to tell you up front, these people said the right thing, did the wrong thing. Okay? These Israelites said the right words, but they did not do it. We're going to concentrate on the right words that they said, though. This is Jeremiah 42, verse 1. Then all the officers, including, oh well, Johanan, son of Kira, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. This sounds pretty familiar. You know, this is this is our cry whenever we're confused and don't know what the will of God is. We want to pray and know where should we go and what should we do. And we're also usually looking for somebody else to help us with that direction. So were they. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I certainly pray to the Lord. I will certainly pray to the Lord, your God, as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us for we will obey the Lord our God. They said... Whether the message you bring us is good for us or bad for us, we will obey the will of God. That is really, as a, as a spirit-filled believer, where you want to be in life. Lord, lead me by your spirit. Lead me by the direction of your word. Whether it means profit or loss for me, I will do what you said to do. There is no amount of money that is worth you missing the will of God. There is no amount of fame, glory, stature, Anything that men might crave that is worth you missing the will of God. And we all would readily agree to that. Yet when you're in the valley of decision, all you can do is weigh your loss against your gain if you do one thing or another. This is bad reasoning. It's sinful. It comes out of the sinful nature. Your decisions are not allowed to be based on natural circumstances. It is either God's will or it is not God's will. Now having said that, in determining what God's will is... What can you do besides look at the signs in your life? I understand that. I'm not discounting it. I'm saying that it is wrong to be in with your back to the Red Sea and saying, well, this must not be God's will because I don't see a way across. God must want us to go back to Egypt. Incidentally, these people that are saying whether it's favorable or unfavorable, I want your will. They didn't really because they didn't obey what God told them to do. 
Another thing, the next verse here, verse 7, you know what they were told not to do, by the way, and I don't want to get into all this. They were told not to go back to Egypt as a way to escape war. They were told to stay in Israel. They went back to Egypt. After Jeremiah said don't go, they went. But something that ought to encourage you, Jeremiah is one of the mightiest prophets in the entire Bible. In verse 7, it says, Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who wrote... I mean, aside from Psalms, Jeremiah's got to be one of the largest books in the Old Testament. In fact, it included many of the minor prophets. Took him ten days to determine what God's will was for his nation. Whether to go to Egypt or to stay here. And we want to make our decisions immediately. That's wrong. That's fast food Christianity. Pull up at this window order, and by the next window, God better have shown you, because if not, you're doing what you want to do. Every time I've done that, as I've looked back, I made a mistake. He said, but Eric, you're still here, you're still preaching, you're still doing God's will. That's the mercy of God at work in my life. But I don't sin so that grace may abound. Because I love the Lord, even when I've made rash, foolish, stupid decisions... God has still worked it out for my benefit because I love Him. But is that an excuse to try to make rash, stupid decisions? Of course not. Of course not. How can we say we love the Lord and be His disciples and that be fitting? You say, well, I think you're talking about me. Now, I'm talking about me. Trust me. Trust me. I have made some of the world's largest blunders. But I'm also talking about you because I love each one of you. I'm not talking about something you did yesterday. I'm talking about... Tomorrow. I don't care what's already happened. I'm interested in you making right choices in the future so that your life will go well, so that you'll live a life that the Bible calls worthy of the Lord. Favorable or unfavorable, you do God's will. That really is the epitome of Matthew 7.21. Only he who does the will of God makes it into the kingdom. Doesn't matter what you say. It's his will. And he's got a perfect will. Don't you be fooled. Don't you start working in vague ambiguity about the Scripture. Well, does he really have a perfect will? I think he just wants me to be good. That's insane. That is absolutely insane. He did not pour his Holy Spirit into you to be one with your spirit to leave you without direction. He has a perfect will for your life. In Judges 3, turn there. Does anybody have any idea how we're doing on time? I don't even know what time I started. I've gone an hour and five minutes already? Oh, Lord. I didn't start at 11, did I? Yeah. Okay. It's called data denial. Everybody just said yes, and I said, no, no, I didn't, did I? <laughs> Christians do that all the time. Every, everything that the Lord is trying to do is show you one thing, and you go, no, no, I don't see that really, do I? Yeah. We're going to be in Judges 3. One through four. These are the nations that the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants, the Israelites, of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Get that. There are hardships in your life to teach you battle experience. This is what Buzz talked about. You're being equipped by your experiences. Those experiences are supposed to build faith. They're supposed to build trust in God. 
I had my back against the Red Sea and God delivered me last time. So now that I see I'm in similar but bigger circumstances, God must be going to deliver me this time. The five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon. <laughs> I can't talk. God called me to preach and I can't speak. <laughs> uh, Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites, get this, to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands. The Lord has left certain areas in your life. Have you ever wondered why you're immediately delivered from some things? I mean, you never have another struggle with it. And other things are a continual struggle for you. He left certain battles in your life to teach you to trust Him, number one. Number two, to test you to find out where you were in your walk. When you're obedient with three of the ten things He called you to do, He knows where you are. When you're obedient with seven of the ten things He called you to do, then He knows where you are. This is His way of knowing your heart. Whether or not you're fully committed to Him or just partially committed to Him. And you need to be fully committed to Him. That ought to be your goal. It's my goal. Do, am I there all of the time? Certainly not. But I will not settle for where I am today. I will push forward to where God has called me to be. But when you face trials, struggles, hardships, you shouldn't look around and say, you know, this is strange. Why is this happening? God left certain obstacles in your life to teach you to trust Him and to test you. If you failed yesterday's test, make up your mind not to fail it tomorrow. He said, but God's grace abounds. Well, great. You go ahead and sin and count on that. And we will see what happens when you stand before Him. The price of disobedience is high. Second Chronicles 24.20 We don't have time. I'll just tell you what it says. Second Chronicles 24.20 basically says, If you forsake God and are disobedient to Him, then He will forsake you and His promises will not come through for you. The price of disobedience is high. You cannot stiff arm God's direction in your life and then count on Him to be there for you. See, His grace does abound, but there is an, a limit to it. And some men find it. Paul said, some men's sins go ahead of them reaching the place of judgment. Others trail behind. God's grace had been shown in one of the Herod's life all of his life, even though he was wicked, even though he stiff-armed God's will for his life until a day where he allowed himself to be proclaimed God. God's grace ran out. He got struck dead right there. In my life, I have seen this happen. Not somebody gets struck dead by an angel with a sword. I don't know how it happened. It came through pancreatic cancer in the, the sense that I'm thinking about. God's grace in that man's life ran out. He said, but he was a Christian. He loved the Lord. He didn't love the Lord enough to do what God told him to do in that instance. And God had had enough. So I can't believe you're saying that. Well, you not believe it. I experienced it. If it's not real for anybody else, I remember crying and praying, Lord, please don't let judgment come on this guy on my account. Well, it wasn't just my account. Apparently, this had been something God had been dealing with him about for a long time. Best advice I ever got was to clear the slate with him. Because he ran from church to church and they all proclaimed he was healed. In my heart, I knew he was not. So I cleared the slate with him. He died. 
The price of disobedience is high. If you forsake God, he'll forsake you. But the reward, the reward of obedience is awesome. Turn to Joel real quick. When you think of Joel, you think of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, right? Well, watch this in Joel. Got to find Joel. Joel 2, 2 2.11. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty are those who obey His command. Mighty are those who obey His command. See, if you stand in your own strength, you cannot stand. Although everything looks secure around you, although you've made the best decisions that you can make in the natural, you will not endure. But if you obey God's command, despite all of the circumstances, you will be mighty. That that is the gospel. God takes you something humble, something that's not doing things the world's way, something that does not look like it will succeed, but because you're imitating God... He causes you to succeed. That is the witness of the gospel. If he only did things through a measure of strength by weighing pros and cons, what kind of God would he be? Is that what he did when he had David stand before Goliath? Is that what he did when he had Israel stand before the nations? It's not. God does not make his decisions for you based on what looks the best. He makes his decisions for you based on your obedience and you will be mighty in your obedience. If no other message I've ever taught gets in you, this one has to. It's the only way that you grow in the kingdom. Quit making decisions in your life based on what looks the best. You better hear from God and stay in step with His Spirit. Do you think that Paul made his decisions based on what was the most comfortable, what was the most secure? But what a blessing he was. Was he mighty in the faith? Yeah, every time he got the snot beat out of him, it's a blessing to us. Now, do you remember how we started this? Do you imitate God alone? No, you also imitate the apostles. Do you imitate the apostles alone? No, also the churches of the apostles. See, those men suffered greatly. And it was the will of God that they do so. Why? Because they were a great encouragement to us who are also called to suffer. Jesus was on the way to the cross. He said, if they do this to me, they're certainly going to do it to you because nobody's greater than the master. But we esteem ourselves greater. I know they killed you, Jesus. You bled all over the place. But me? Oh, no, I'm if it's a little uncomfortable, I can't do it. You know, we're Americans. You never make it in the kingdom that way. Never. You may make it for a while, but at some point, the cares and worries of the world will choke you out. When you think of that parable of the sower, don't think that happened in a week. You know, when one springs up quickly and he dies, so that that may have been short. But think about the ones that grew. They started to get roots. But the cares and the worries of the world choked them out. At some point, they decided, my will instead of God's. The cares and the worries of the world began to influence them until they could no longer make God's decisions. In Genesis 6, verses 5 through 6, you see that God says the inclination of a man's heart is evil all of the time. God even goes so far as to say this pains him in his heart. When I studied this years ago, you find out a heart is not this organ beating in you, according to the Bible. 
It is the very center of a human being. It's the inmost part. God saw that in the center of every human being, his heart's thoughts were not godly. They were wicked. This grieved God in the very center of him. And he decided to flood the earth and save eight people. After that, you ought to have concluded inside of a man, Jesus said, he put no trust in a man because he knew what was in them. Well, if we know that what is in us naturally, in the very center of us, is not godly, it is not okay to say, well, this is just what was in my heart. Something has to happen to your heart. It must be born again with you. And that is a lifelong process. It must be renovated. We don't have time to do it, but Shechem. Think of, no, we're going to do it. Go to Genesis 34. This is an example of somebody's heart that led them astray. We have the idea, well, it was in my heart to do it, so, so that makes things okay. No, your heart is wicked. It needs to be born again. It needs to be renewed with the Holy Spirit. Y'all in Genesis 34? I'm going to just read a couple of verses. I'm going to read 1 through 4 and then 8 through 10. Now, Dina, the daughter of Leah, had born to, that Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. Now, is that godly? How do you know that's not godly, to take a woman and violate her? How would you know that? Well, the Word tells you it's wrong, and then the Spirit of God within you tells you it's wrong. But what did his heart tell him? Took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dina. His heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. He took her and violated her. He raped this girl because his heart was drawn to her. Can you see how wicked that is? But it's what his heart told him to do. Your heart does not always tell you to do what God tells you to do. In fact, it's a good bet your heart will tell you to do something that is not God's will. You said, but we're filled with the Holy Ghost. Yes, and you have two natures that war in you. They're both warring in the very center of you. One is your sinful nature. The other is God's Holy Spirit. And you know what? This is last, the last message that we, we taught. It takes time to be able to discern between the two. It takes even more time to be able to put your heart aside and take up God's heart. It takes a whole lot more time to be corrected in the instances that you get it wrong so that you can learn to get it right. But that's exactly what needs to happen. Verses 8 through 10. But Hamor said to, to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to me. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters. You can settle among us. What's wrong with that? God told Abraham that this land was his. That the, his descendants were supposed to live there. He's not supposed to have the descendants of Hamor and Shechem there. This was Satan's will, not God's will. But Hamor and his son had their heart set on it. Your heart can be set on things that are wrong, that are bad. Is it good in the natural? Yes, this looked like peace. It looked like a chance for these two men to share their lives with each other. God had called them to influence the nations. Maybe this was it. Wrong. Because it's not how God said to do it. I'd love to teach on that in more depth, but I don't think we have time. If your heart can lie to you, what needs to happen? 1 Samuel 10.9 speaks of God changing Saul's heart. You say, Saul? 
How could God change Saul's heart? Saul was wicked, right? Not all of his life. There was a point that Samuel says, God renovated Saul's heart. He changed it. And in the Old Testament sense, he got born again. He didn't stay that way though. See, God is changing each one of our hearts. He's molding us into His image. But what caused Saul to fall? Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 13. I'm sorry I'm having to rush through some of these. I'd like to read them all. But I also want this to fit on a CD. Get this. 1 Samuel 13, verses 11 through 14. Saul's heart had been renovated. He began to prophesy. He was filled with the Spirit of God, just like you are. He was anointed as king of all of Israel. The head of God's holy nation. Saul remained at Gilgal. This is... uh, What verse is that? 8. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. That's what he had been commanded to do. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering. Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. The prophet had told the king of Israel, do not... Do your own offerings. I will come on the seventh day. I will do it. But because Saul was quaking with fear, he was looking at the natural circumstances, and so were soldiers. The soldiers began to leave. And Saul said, oh, I better do something. After all, God wants us to have an army. God doesn't want us to be without an army, does He? So he begins to work in his own strength to do something that looks good, but it's not God's will. He starts to sacrifice so that the soldiers won't depart. Verse 11. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Your thoughts that come out of your heart and the compulsions that you feel are not always God. If it's motivated by fear of loss, I can assure you it's not God. See, he was there, he'd been given the command of God, but when he saw the circumstances, he began to think. There are certain things you're not allowed to think. You're commanded in the Scripture to take captive your thoughts, to measure them against the obedience of Christ. And to cast them down if they don't measure up. Do you all know that you're commanded to do that? When you have a thought that says, I don't really like my pastor. You're commanded to throw that down because it didn't come from God's nature in you. It came from the devil. When you thought, I'm going to be impoverished. When you thought, I'm going to die in sickness. My kids are are going to... Any of those thoughts that come out of your heart is influenced by the devil, not from God. And if you dwell on them, they will compel you to do something that's not God's will. That's exactly what happened to Saul. And you know what Saul gets to become? A shadowing type of the Antichrist. Somebody who was anointed by God for a specific purpose. And their purpose turned out to be incredibly wicked for the nation. The people's choice. He began to fear. God didn't, your perfect love for God should drive out fear. 
Don't let your thoughts compel you to do things that aren't godly. If we're aware of the devil's schemes and the way he works, then Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life. See, since you know that your heart has a natural inclination to be wicked, and that God is renewing it, you need to guard what thoughts you let roll around in there. When you begin to dwell on things that are not what God called you to do, that are negative, you need to be careful. You need to weed those out of your heart. Because if you let them stay in that well, they will defile it. They will poison it. They will compel you to act in a way that is not becoming of a Christian. You can have a thought that you're not paid enough at work. And it not be inspired by God. It's not God telling you that you he, He's desiring to give you a race. It's just plain old, I, I don't feel like I'm paid enough. And you may not be. But if that thought's not being brought to you by God for a purpose, and you let that dwell in your heart, what's going to happen? You become discontented with your workplace. Before long, not only are you discontented with your workplace, but you're not an effective witness for God. And it has begun to defile you. Bitterness does this every time. There's never a time a Christian's allowed to stay bitter. It's why you're told the strongest statement in all of the Bible is if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. This is so that the wellspring of your heart is not defiled. I've quoted it almost every time, but it's Psalm 141, 4 and 5. It says, Lord, Lord, I, I want to protect my heart that it would be inclined to follow you, so let a righteous man strike me. You do whatever it takes to protect your heart. Because once you get that wrong thought in there and it's begun to compel you, it is almost impossible to hear the will of God. It begins to overtake you and you begin to justify your thoughts are all of a sudden God's thoughts. Have you ever wondered how pastors end up in adultery? You know, it starts off with just a thought. But as it rolls around in them, before long they've got it justified in their minds. That it's okay. After all, my wife doesn't really love the Lord as much as this woman does. My wife's not as anointed as this woman. I mean, you would be surprised. David, his, his failure as a king, when, when he failed, it starts with a thought. We need to imitate God in every area, even in our thoughts. Protect your heart so that you can be obedient. John 14. Jesus was our perfect example of obedience. Listen to what he says about it. I mean, there's a ton of scriptures in 1 John that we could go to. They basically tell you, you are not saved if you're not obedient. And I'll read you a couple. But I, this, the goal of this is not to beat you up and say you're not being obedient. The goal of this is so that when you begin to get thoughts you shouldn't have, you cast them down. So that when you're faced with making hard decisions, you remember that you lean on God's Spirit and not upon the natural decision-making process. You worried about having nothing? You worried about being left out in the dust? The only way to really do that is to trust in your own arm for strength. If you trust in God's might, you will never be without. David said, I have seen many things. I was young and now I'm old, but I have never seen, never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. God will not get you there. You'll suffer all kinds of things, may suffer loss on all sides, but He will take care of you if you lean on Him. 
But if you decide that you're going to lean on your own understanding, He will make sure that you fall. And He'll make sure that you fall to teach you not to do it because He loves you. That's mercy. John 14. We're starting in verse 15. We're, we're going to close right after this. We've got maybe two more scriptures. If you love me, you will obey what I command. I've read this all kind of ways. Most often I read it as, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Meaning, if you don't obey me, it's because you didn't love me. It's not the right way to look at it. Alright, I mean, that's, that's a possibility. What it really means is, if you love me, or because you love me, you will obey what I command. In other words, the love for God empowers you to obey His commands. It's not, I obey His commands because otherwise it means I don't love Him. It's because I love Him, I obey His commands. Does that make sense? And I will ask the Father and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. See the relationship between love and obedience? Watch this. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. See, we work it out all kind of ways in our mind. This is pretty straightforward, isn't it? I heard somebody stand up and talk about the permissive will of God one time. I would like to know what that is. And in the context they were saying, they said, if I understood the grace of God back then like I do now, I never would have done thus and so. In other words, they would not have made the sacrifices to follow God that they had made. Because they're saying that God had a permissive will for their life. They could have went on and done these other things they wanted to do. That's not love for God. Guy's very well known though. Got a big church. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer. I want you to get this part. For the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Y'all, the example of following God is that your love for Jesus compels you to do exactly what He's commanded you, regardless of the cost. Jesus set that example when the God of this universe allowed Himself to be nailed to a cross naked and dying. Humiliated. Because it was God's will for Him. 
But we think God's will for us can't be anything but blessing. Your persecution, your suffering is somebody else's blessing. Why can't we see that? We're to imitate God who died on a cross for us. We're to imitate the apostles who gave their lives and martyred them for us. We're to imitate the churches that faced huge persecution. And yet we think God just wants us blessed. What if your loss for the gospel encourages somebody else who's weaker in the faith to trust God? See, Paul's great persecutions encourage me to endure the smaller persecutions that I face as my faith is being built. That should be happening in our lives too. Get out of your mind that God would never do thus and so. It's insanely wrong. It's totally anti-Christ spirit. And it's pervasive in the church today. Luke eleven twenty seven and 28 says, Blessed is your mama, Jesus. Blessed is the one who nursed you. Jesus said, no, but rather blessed is he who does the will of God. You're not blessed based on your heritage, upon your lineage. You're caring for your relatives. You are blessed based on doing the will of God. Jesus didn't just say this this one time. He's, I mean, because that spirit's been around always. He said this quite a few times. His family shows up outside seeking to take charge of him, thinking he's out of his mind because he's doing the will of God. Yeah, God's will will cause people to think you're crazy. I can't believe they're willing to move from Arkansas to Texas. I can't believe they're willing to buy a house there. Those Stevens may not even be around in two years. God's will will cause you to look foolish in people's eyes. You remember what Jesus said about his mother, his brothers, and his sisters that were outside? He said, who are they? My mother and brothers and sisters are he who does the will of God. Yo, your relationships with each other have got to be stronger than any natural relationship. Has to be. We are bound together by one common thing, achieving the will of God. Not our lineage, not who nursed us, not, not national heritage, none of those things. We gave up that life. We've lost that life to live a life in Jesus. John, I'm sorry, Romans 15:18. Paul goes ahead and he speaks about his actions. And let me read that. We'll read these two scriptures and we'll quit. Y'all still with me? Your actions should be teaching people about the faith. In Romans 15, verse 18, starting in 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Now, did what Paul say, the, his, his words and his actions, teach you to obey Christ? Yes. How? Because you see that the guy suffered. At, you don't love Paul just because he was a speaker. You love Paul because he suffered greatly and yet completed the will of God in his life. Our actions should be no different. You should be willing to do anything that your life might be an example to others in doing exactly what the Father's commanded you. 1 John 2.3 basically tells you that you know that you are in Him when you obey Him. 
So when you're not confident about things, your confidence should be drawn from the fact that you know you're in God's will because you're obeying Him. See, I may not have what it takes in the natural to start a church, but I can be confident that the church will be started because I know I'm obedient to His commands. When you have no confidence, and that word confidence comes out of the Scripture, not from me. When you have no confidence, you need to examine and say, do I have no confidence because I'm not clinging to the Word? Or do I have no confidence because the Word's not telling me to do what I'm doing? That should be, that's what Christians tend to term peace, being led by the peace. Either you have a confidence or you don't. Hebrews 5.9 speaks of the salvation of our God being for the obedient. While we're in Romans, look at Romans 16.26. This is the end game. 16.25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. Why? So that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus. We're called to be a nation of imitators. We're called to disciple people, teach them to obey and imitating God so that God will have a representation from all nations on the earth who obey him and have become a part of a new nation. That is the plan of God. In Romans 15, when you get around the 27th, 28th, I'm sorry, Corinthians 15, 27th, 28th verse, we're talking about God being all in all, the way that He's all in all is when all people everywhere totally recognize Him as King. We're supposed to be that catalyst. It starts with us and spreads to the other nations. In fact, the Jewish apostles were the Israel of God and it has spread to us and now it's supposed to continue. But that only works, the plan of God is only being advanced as you are obedient in your individual life. 